Hey, I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 112, where you are joined by producer, writer, and director, Joe Begas. He talks about his new films, Bliss and VFW, which are available now on digital at time of release. You could also pick up Bliss on Blu-ray, VFW's due on Blu-ray end of March. Learn all about Joe's incredible creative process. Dissect some awesome scenes from both films with a fascinating look behind the camera. Working with Dora Madison on both films and the ensemble cast of genre legends in VFW and tons and tons and tons of fun and incredible gore. Some of the best you've ever seen. Better start painting. You have a deadline. This is Joe Vegas and you are strung out on another blood-soaked episode of The Boo Crew. It's Q&A time, kid. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is an award-winning producer, writer, and director. He made his feature-length debut with the sci-fi horror flick Almost Human in 2013, followed that up with a critically acclaimed The Mind's Eye, which earned a prize at Austin's Fantastic Fest. In 2019, he returned with Bliss, a neon-soaked, drug-fueled, and blood-stained nightmare following an artist's struggle with creativity depicting a side of L.A rarely explored on film. It is a masterpiece, quenching the thirst of horror and genre fans with something entirely fresh and original, yet that somehow feels like home. Much like the high experience by Desi in the movie, it leaves us craving even more of his work. Well, more we got, and wow, did he ever deliver. VFW is his latest film, an intoxicating concoction of extreme practical effects, brilliant dialogue, unforgettable performances, and action that does not let up. It leaves the audience gasping for air, and so insanely satisfied. It is no wonder people have referred to him as making some of the most exciting and best horror films of the past 20 years. We are incredibly honored to welcome the visionary Joe Begas, everybody. Yeah! How's it going? Dude. You need to be my PR guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, man, for on the tremendous success and accolades you've been getting. It is more than well-deserved. And also, thank you for your very inspired contribution to the ethos of the genre and forging these new classics that have forever changed the dialogue, if you ask us. Well, I appreciate that. I guess we'll see how it turns out. But I mean, the fact that you guys are reacting that way already is awesome. So, Dude, <laughs> what were the films that blew your mind growing up? It was kind of a, um, uh, you know, I started watching horror movies really young. So when I was really young, it was stuff like uh, Basket Case. I watched when I was probably five or six. Uh, phantasm i had this thing where my parents had me really young when they were in high school like uh so by the time i was five or six my parents were you know 21 22 and they kind of just taught me how to use the vcr so i would throw in a movie and i'd watch like drop dead fred and then on that same vhs would be pet cemetery and then basket case and then phantasm 2 and me being a kid i would just let it all play out and obviously it just fried my mind so i mean as a kid seeing this stuff it just automatically it was so larger than life that uh even from a young age i was just trying to you know, pull this up. And it's weird because a lot of the movies that I watched when I was that age or, you know, up until I was a teenager had a certain effect on me because of just how sensational they were. But now as I become an adult, they almost are recontextualized to me, you know, stuff like the fly or video drum, a lot of Cronenberg's work and like Carpenter's work where there's actually subtext and stuff there. It's, uh, it's recontextualized as I become an adult. So, um, 
it's it's fascinating. I think that's the strongest cinema when you can generationally see something new every time, you know, as you grow older. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Growing up schooled by Hennenlotter is amazing. <laughs> probably says a lot, I guess. <laughs> and Drop Dead Fred. I just, you just recently, watched that. Yeah, yeah like I the just other day. recently rewatched yeah. it. It's amazing. Yeah. There's like some amazing sight gags and just effects work and like the way that it all comes together. Yeah, they don't make movies like that anymore. Could you imagine if kids in movies were still like that? I mean, I wish. I know. I only when wish. I watched it, I was like, oh, I'm going to show my kids this. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to do that after. <laughs> like, it was kind of intense. Yeah, it's it's rough. And there's dark stuff in there, too. It's, yeah. All those kind of kid, quote unquote, kid horror movies back then were, yeah. Like The Witches, that was scary. Yeah, it's scary like, as Nicholas Roeg to direct a, you know, a, a PG kids movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> Based on real doll material. Yeah. What would you well. do with a PG PG-13 movie. Oh, that'd be interesting. I'd, I'd have a lot of fights with the MPAA. Eventually, <laughs> just, just make the blood green. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta go to black and white for this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Chocolate syrup. <laughs> Do you remember what your very first experience with horror was? Like your very first movie? I think it would probably be uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. It might not have been my first, but uh, like that's the one that stuck in my mind because I remember what, like having... I was scared to go to sleep. That's the first thing where it affected me where I was like, he's going to get me when I'm asleep. Uh, my parents tell me stories of me in my crib when I was like two, you know, yelling tales from the crypt whenever the theme would come on because I watched it as 19 year old parents every, every Sunday night when it aired or Wednesday night or whatever. But I don't remember that. I just remember not being able to sleep because of Freddy Krueger. And that's the first time I was ever actually scared. What particular scene of that movie was it? It was a scene where he's coming down the alleyway and he's yes, just a yeah. silhouette. I felt like he would be coming down the hallway. And the same thing, the next one I remember is Phantasm. And I remember because I could see from my bed, the door would be cracked because I always wanted light coming in. And I could see down the hallway and like I would see the tall man in slow motion with like the echo going down the hallway of him coming down the hallway. And I just pull the covers up like, I mean, I was fucking, you know, so young. Definitely should not have been watching those. <laughs> So when did you decide that your passion for, for all this in the genre would end up being something that you would do creatively? Did you start making short films really young? Yeah, I feel like um, when I was really young, I knew I always wanted to make movies, but I just thought the actors kind of made it up like in front of the camera when I was, you know, eight or nine. Yeah. I didn't know what like the editor was. And then when I finally learned what the director was, that's, I was probably, I don't know, it's hard to say, but maybe 11 or 12 or 13, somewhere around there when I like a figured out what these people actually do. And I knew from then that that's what I wanted to do. And that's probably around the time I started making shorts by myself when I was 12 or 13. I convinced my dad to let me use the VHS uh, recorder they had. And then when I was around 13, I got a really cheap, shitty uh, SVHS camcorder to myself. And then I met Josh when I was around 14 or 15. And he was the first person besides myself that actually started making movies with me. So it feels like it's constantly been ingrained in my life. Like I can't even think of a time, you know, I don't have very many memories before I was 12, but I can't think of a time when I had something else I wanted to do besides make movies. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, and I thank my parents for letting me just run the VCR while I slept, you know. And sure. <laughs> yeah, it turned out great. <laughs> Speaking of Josh, I mean, right from go. So, wow, I didn't even know it went back that far, that relationship. I knew he worked on Almost Human in 2013 and, and the Bad Moon Rising werewolf short. So he was. you started to form your, your band, so to speak, that became your production company, Channel 83. Like really young, huh? Yeah, we met in high school. We went to the same high school, lived about a mile down the, excuse me, down the road from each other. Yeah. Um, and right away we started making movies. Uh, we just he was a musician foremost, um, and he was really talented. And like he just had the rhythm of you know he he took over editing really quickly, and he has a screen presence, so he was in front of the camera, and I would just want to run the camera. So it was really, it really worked out. He kind of assimilated and filled in. 
he was really good at the things that I wasn't. Sure. Um, so to speak. So we bonded over that really quickly. And it's so weird because it feels like we were friends forever before we moved out here. But now like thinking back, it's like we were friends for maybe four years and then we just, we moved to LA and you know, we've been out here for 11 years now. So, um, we like right from the get go, it's like, we're moving to LA, you know, fuck this. We're just going to make movies. We didn't go to college. We weren't particularly fond of school or good at school. So we just wanted to get the fuck out and go come here and make movies. And thankfully it worked out <laughs> so far. Josh is, he is a fantastic editor. I mean, he did, uh, I was talking to upstairs there. He did Gretel and Hansel recently, as well as all your films. He did Halston and we are still here. All these great movies. Yeah. What do you think it is about his work that is so unique to him beyond? Is it, is it his rhythmic sensibilities or what, what do you think it is? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, he just has that rhythm. Um, he knows, you know, becoming as a musician, he has that he's really, uh, you know, he's really well versed in cinema. And also I feel like there's, you know, kind of a new generation of people like us coming up. It's almost like a new school of like how, you know, when Robert Rodriguez came in, he, it was able to finally start doing himself himself. But now it's like, we're coming from a generation where, you know, Josh was learning how to edit when he was 13 in his bedroom. Like, so <laughs> having that, you know, coming into the studio system or coming into this system. Now there's not a lot of people who are able to grow up making movies where they can nonlinear edit in their bedroom and like be really, so he's just, I feel like, you know, inherently really good at it, but also uh, it's this new generation where we're able to really hone that in, you know, and I can go out and we could shoot tons and tons and tons of shorts. Like honestly, you know, in the nineties, that wasn't really possible. We were talking early two thousands and cameras were just coming out. We're able to do that. You know, uh, systems are just coming out where kids could actually do that stuff. So I feel like we're kind of on the forefront of that movement. And, you know, Josh is just so inherently talented and that stuff that like he was able to kind of rise to the top. And, you know, I don't want to be biased because he is my editor, but I think in this space, there's, you know, nobody better, even like the studio our you know space like he should definitely be cutting more studios yeah no hopefully I, it doesn't get too big though because right? I, don't, I don't know if i'm gonna get into the studio space as fast as he is you need so a man. motherfucker you need better a man. stick around <laughs> well i was gonna say in terms of like editing uh to retain the impact of the way your films are lit even is that is that a challenge to edit and retain that kind of that magic no, I think that josh also that, that something that comes with that is he just has known me for so long so he inherently can like almost finished sentences of stuff that I want. He knows what I want. And I mean, the way that I light stuff, we've kind of honed over four movies now and I have a really good DP. You know, I shot my first two movies um, and I didn't think I'd ever use a DP. I have a DP now who is uh, really um, open to the way that I work. I still operate my camera, but he kind of comes in and he lets me, basically, I, I, I feel like I'm still in the position that I was when I was shooting my movies because I come in and I'm like, here's exactly how it's going to be lit. Here's the lenses we're going to use and I'm going to operate everything. And he takes that with no ego and elevates it beyond what I could have done myself while retaining exactly what I want. I feel like Josh does the same exact thing when it comes to the edit. And um, it's just all three of us working together and kind of being on the same wavelength. We're able to keep that, uh, the, the same kind of uh, vision from forward to forward to end, you know? Yeah. We're all on the same plane right from the get-go. And there's an, and now you've added other people to that fold as well. Uh, there's like Graham Skipper and now Dor Madison and even George Wentz is kind of a part of that crew. <laughs> yeah, Arm. the Channel 83 repertoire. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so what are the advantages do you find of having that close group of people like your own troupe that augments the whole entire creative process, like even down to the actors? Because, well, I feel like um, when you have people like that, A, they know what you want, they trust you you know what they're good at and you know how to play to their strengths. And the more stuff you do together, the better everybody gets at working together. And it's like, you know, these people are all my really good friends and there's nothing better than being in a stressful situation, like making a movie and you're there with your friends who have the same common goal. And if you 
have that same group of people that you bring from movie to movie, no matter the budget, no matter the size, they're going to feel just as invested in that movie as, as you are, you know? And I've had people who want to give me more money for stuff and they're like, well, you switch out members of your crew. And it's like, well, fuck no. If you like the movie, you like the package. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I can go in there and yeah, sure. I can direct an entire crew of people. I don't know to do something I want, but they don't fucking know me. They're not invested in the movie. They could give a shit less. They're going to do the baseline of what they need unless you get top rate crew, which, you know, let's be honest, isn't going to happen in a, sub million dollar horror movies um so i just think it's important like everybody grows together everybody is in it together you know and everybody feels uh the same sense of ownership and pride in the product and i think that's important you know because it's true without this group of people the movies wouldn't be what they are you know it is my vision but they make that happen and make it come true as as well as it does you know as a viewer, what do you think that does to the experience? Because, I mean, you know, there's a lot of classic troops that go with directors like Sam Raimi or Tarantino and all these people. That, but there is something as a viewer that one gets from that familial element. What is that for you as a viewer? Well, I like I mean, I like when you can look at a movie and you can go, this is definitely this director. You know, like I look at somebody like Paul Thomas Anderson and all of his movies are so fucking good and feel so good. But for me, nothing's ever topped Boogie Nights. The Holy Blood has come close, but because every single movie feels so distinctly like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, it doesn't matter what I think of each one. Like, I'm just as excited for that next one because I know it's going to be like, no matter what this experience. And like, there's a lot of great directors out there who they go and they're directors for hires and all of their movies are great, but they don't have that sense of like, oh, I'm getting a new movie that I know I'm going to have this feeling I can just kind of wash myself in it. And that's important. That's an important aesthetic and feeling to have to me as a filmmaker, because that's what I enjoy watching when I see other people's movies is just like, you know what you're, you know, it's like a new album comes out from a band that you love with all this. They've had the same members for 20 years, you know, you know, you know what you're getting, but you're excited if it's going to, it's just, I feel like that. I like that aesthetic. I like that feel, you know, I like that in other filmmakers. I like that in other projects and I want to bring that. And it also just makes me feel better when I make movies. You know, I feel like it, it elevates me, makes me look better. makes them look better. Everybody looks better. Yeah. 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 It acts almost like a megaphone. It makes the voice even louder and more distinct, which, uh, you know, I love, I love seeing. Yeah. You wear a lot of hats in the production of your films. What are the advantages of doing that? I don't know. I think that it's different for every director. I mean, for me, like I operate camera and I can say with 100% confidence, there are probably thousands of camera operators out there that are so much better than I am. But um, I just love being part of the process. And I feel like, you know, being the operator for me brings something to the movies that otherwise wouldn't, that makes it feel, you know, inherently me, like I'm there on the floor with, for instance, in VFW, we have 60 pages where I'm on the floor with these guys and the set's completely locked off. So it's the camera operator, the sound guy and the actors. Like if I wasn't in there and it's like, I'm in there dictating this and it's almost like I'm an actor. I'm, I'm staging the camera while I'm staging the actors. I'm in here with you guys. I'm part of the action. Like I like being there like that, being a character, I like making the, the camera part of the, the, uh, the camera character. I like being there when we're doing gags, getting covered in blood. Uh, and also I feel like it makes the actors feel so much more comfortable when I'm in there with the fucking camera holding a hundred pound camera. I'm sweating. I'm covered in shit. You know, the haze is hitting us. We're in the sun. Like, and it's just us. It's like, we're out to war. We're a troop. Everybody else involved in the productions on another side of the wall, looking at monitors. It's me, the actors, the camera and the fucking guy holding the boom pole. And it's like, this is movie making. That's Let's awesome. go fucking do something. <laughs> and um, I've had so many instances where people are like, how did you get actors to do that? Oh God, the actors like, and it's like, I, don't, I just, I feel like, you know, they, they trust me because I'm trusting them. And like, you know, it makes myself feel like, so like for me, I could never give up camera operating and VFW. I was so tired from bliss and all this stuff. And I was just like, since my DPM mic, I'm like, I think we're going to split the camera operator duties in this a little bit more. And maybe two hours into day one, I was like, yeah, that ain't fucking happening. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> 
that scene in Bliss, for example, when you're spinning, how did you accomplish that? Like, were you there spinning? Like, yeah, yeah. And actually, that's one of the very first things. Like, when I started thinking (laughs) of a breakdown, I wanted to do something like that. And it's so funny because that to me, there was after we shot that scene, I had never felt so electrified by the filmmaking. Like, I feel like Dora was so fucking good. And I was sitting there watching her performance while I was like almost getting dizzy trying to hold this. And like, I was. It, I just I've never had an experience like that where I felt like the character I was dizzy trying to hold this on the sweat coming down like and I'm getting more and more anxiety the faster we're spinning and I told her it's like a three minute take you just keep going faster oh, and faster man. and faster and I was going faster we did one take and the boom guy was behind me and he almost threw up he's like I'm gonna go on the other side of the wall <laughs> and they actually planted the mic and it, because the boom guy couldn't handle it and we had like a monitor set up but since it was 16 it was like so jagged and like it's just me with my eyepiece and the floor's slippery and the, there's nobody who can hold me because they were getting dizzy so I'm just sitting there with the door I'm trying to hold it in focus of sweat i'm getting so anxious she's just going off and off we're going faster and faster and like afterwards i was just so fucking electrified with the film i'm like this is what filmmaking is fucking about and if i was on the other side of that wall watching this on monitor i would have never felt the energy that i felt here and like you know sitting there yelling faster faster and i'm spinning around fast faster faster fucking just us on the floor directing and like there's nothing more i like with having the camera in my hand and just me and the actor and the camera and it's like we're just this we're we're on the floor yeah. making the fucking scene, and that's all that matters right now. Yeah. Uh, not that just, not scene just, was amazing. Yeah, not, not just that scene, though. It's like the whole movie, you have these unique camera movements. Like the camera's always moving, almost in every scene, yeah, yeah. and it's very unique. Like it's not, And it kind of adds to the uneasiness of what's going on and the, the downward spiral that goes on in Dora's like, mind. You know? yeah, like yeah. It just goes into madness, and the camera work gets crazier and crazier. You see her like like fall back and then come back up. And you're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, that's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. Was uh, she wearing a camera when those scenes where she like just kind of ascends like from a lying down position? Yeah. So there's the rig, which um, is basically a, it's a snorry cam that was the original name that they use in like, you know, mean streets and then Aronofsky used it a lot in pie and Requiem for dream. Uh, we rented it from um, this company in Burbank and it's called the doggy cam, um, hmm. which they use on any given Sunday. That's basically now the snorry cam is the doggy cam. But what we would do is she would walk around that. And then when she actually wanted to raise, she was wearing it. And we would have uh, three people out of because she's also on a six millimeter lens. So on that, yeah, it's very like fish, rig, on, fish on. Yeah, so we yeah. they have to be way back, and they just pull the bars up, and she just lets herself go, so that when she comes up, her eyes will kind of her arms will fling back, and they just rip it up. We have a board underneath her feet, so that when she comes up, she can use it as an angle, and she just comes straight up. They dive out of the way, and she uses the momentum just to launch forward. And it, it looks like, and that's the thing is shooting on sixteen two. We had such a bad signal, and um, we couldn't do playback, so it's like. And because I was operating, uh, I would have to have people shoot it on an iPhone and I still couldn't tell. <laughs> so like a lot of this was kind of like, I think we got it. That seems good. Let's just, we got to move on. <laughs> so, um, so it was really, uh, it was really a, a grubby punk rock kind of shoot. Like, yeah. It was I think, I think fucking first, awesome. The first time I saw that was uh, Jared Leto, right? In uh, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, yeah. He wears it a lot. Yeah, that. that's the first time I saw and that. And Connolly wears it a lot in that too. That's right, yeah. And Dora, I mean, you know, to her credit, that fucking film camera is heavy. Like, so you're, she's actually she's like Tom Cruising that shit where she's got to be the camera operator. And she's like, you know, she's a small girl, so she's got this big rig on her with a fucking film camera. Like, that's wow. just heavy with a roll of film in it, you know? We, we still had the lightest camera possible, but, I mean, you know, it's a film, film camera with heavy-ass lenses on it. It was, uh, you know, she was a trooper. Fuck. Well, as much as that film is filled with so much adrenaline and intensity, the story is so delicate and nuanced that it would really crumble without Desi, without the perfect Desi. Yeah. So take us on the journey about finding Dora as Desi. She just, she, she God, she takes it to crazy love. She has to do a lot of crazy shit in this yeah. movie, physical, mentally. 
if we didn't cast Dora, if we didn't cast the right person, the movie would not have worked whatsoever. And um, you know, I love Dora so much the fact that she was able to, you know, the way she embraced this completely. Um and I didn't know who I was gonna cast. Basically I had cast the entire movie and written the entire movie for certain people besides Dora, her best friend, and the boyfriend, those three leads. I had no idea who I was gonna do. So I hired a casting director for the first time. Since we're shooting in LA, I was hoping I can get, you know, some some good actors who would want to stay in town and make the movie for a hundred dollars a day, which is what the union rate was at our budget. <laughs> um, and Dora came in and I'm not familiar with Friday night lights, which she was a lead on and Chicago fire, which yeah. she was a lead on. I'm not familiar with one of those shows, but she came in and she just has this great fucking hair that even <laughs> yes. in addition tape, I can see photographed well. And I like, I like people who like just photograph well and don't look like the normal. I mean, cause when we were casting this movie, it's like the movie's written like you see it. And I have like girls coming in with, they look like they're ready for an Instagram model photo shoot. I'm like, guys, like, did you read the yeah. fucking script? Like, <laughs> that's not how this character would dress. So right. Dora came in and she like was dressed perfectly, had this big hair that's just going to photograph so good. I'm just thinking about her, like the scenes where she's just moving around painting and just how that would fucking look. And then she goes into it and um, she's doing the agency scene and she's so good. And I'm like, man, this girl's really good. I had never met her before. And she started improving. and the, her character's, for all intents and purposes, completely based on me. Um, and she started improving this agency scene using insults and rebuttals that um, my friends, I showed it to Josh and I was like, dude, watch this audition tape. And he's like, I can't believe you've never met her because she's literally saying shit that I've never heard anybody but you fucking say in a uh. conversation. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God. So I went and met Dora and um, we got along really well. And right off the bat, she was kind of like, look, I did these two network shows that I, it's just so against what I want to do. I'm ready to fucking change stuff up. You know, I, I, I've regret some of the movies I've turned on in the past. Let's just fucking go for broke. And like me, I hadn't made a movie in so long and I was so desperate like to make, I was like, I just, I'm just going to make a fuck you movie. Like and if this is the last movie I ever make, this is my fucking take it to the grave movie. And she was kind of in the same boat as me. And we were just like, you know what, let's do this. And right off the bat, like um, she, everything she's wearing in the movie, like besides her pants are my clothes. She's wearing all my shirts and everything. She came over and raided my wardrobe. She took records of mine, all my movies, like just basically assimilated into me and um it was a crazy fucking experience to see her bring that to life and she she brought things i had on the page above and beyond and brought, like was willing to go farther than stuff i had on the page which is you know something that is so 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 rare oh. you know i have people who just like they've had you know actors who will just back out of a topless scene or like you know something like that or, or actors and actresses who suddenly don't want to do a sex scene but like everybody in this movie because they saw what we were doing it was kind of like how much further can we take it what else can we do because we all trusted each other and we knew what we were doing wasn't exploitative but we were doing like something that mattered to all of us because everybody kind of everybody making the movie related to her character in a way if right. that makes sense sure no sure i thought that was um maybe part of that re relationship too is the way that the look and feel that la takes on or that the parts of LA that you highlight in the movie is really fascinating because it's that kind of evil core that LA can have as well. It is LA is kind of a vampire for the creatives. Yeah. They'll suck that shit out of you and, and not give a shit about you at the end, you know, when your carcass is lying there. Well, and that's the thing too, is like LA, I feel like so many people shoot movies in LA, but it's not photographed. Like LA is, has so much texture and there's so many like yeah. things that just aren't exploited in LA. Like Michael Mann, does really well in LA and like the maniac remake I feel like is one of the only horror movies recently where it's like you brought out the grungy New York style exploitation feel of LA that yeah. I know exists we all live here we know yep. how fucking 
crazy some of the city is, but like nobody ever <laughs> photographs that. It's kind of like every horror movie takes place in the Hollywood Hills or in Pasadena. Right. And it's like, well, why don't you guys take advantage of all this? So for me, it's like, I want to shoot this, you know, it, the whole thing's going to be a fucking magic hour in the shittiest locations, like in dive bars. Cause I only hang out in dive bars. You know, I, I don't, I'm only out like, you know, right when the sun goes down, I'm up all night. Like I'm going to fucking make the LA that I know and love and I'm going to shoot it on film so it fucking looks right. Um, and I'm so glad that I did. <laughs> oh, that's so great. The, her apartment, is that an actual uh, real location? Or yeah, well, it's a loft that gets rented out for photo shoots. Um, so that place was just one big giant open room with all white walls. So uh, we came in and my production center, we built like three false walls, painted the entire thing black and red, added all the... Um, black and white checkered tile wow. and then production design to built like the whole painting wall and everything like that. And then everything in there, we, uh, because the window faced sunset, we shot all of the daytime stuff in there literally in the 45 minutes before nighttime. So oh, that the shit. sun was always in the frame since most of the movies at night. Anyway, we'd start our days off. Okay. We've got an hour of sunlight. Wait till the sun's in this picture frame and then we're going to shoot everything with the sun coming in and then we'll go into our night shoots because it's we only have nine hours of nighttime anyway. So we specifically designed the movie where everything was shot and literally the hour before nighttime so that <laughs> it fucking looks, you know, like McTiernan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What happened to the painting? Good it's, question. It's up in my apartment. Hell yeah! Yes. <laughs> we want, so we want it. <laughs> yeah. That is cute. Who did it? Who did the um, actual painting? So Chet Czar, okay. who I'm a big fan of, who actually, he designed a lot of stuff for Clive Barker, and he does, if you guys went to the Guillermo del, uh, Guillermo del Toro exhibit, yes. he's got like seven pieces there. He does a lot of stuff for Guillermo, does a lot of design for him. He designed like Darkman. Um, he used to be a special effects guy, and now he exclusively does paintings. And when the Mind's Eye was on its festival run, I went to a festival in Ithaca where they had Chet Czar, like an art installation for Chet Czar, and I met him there. And when I was writing the script, I uh, had him in mind completely, finished the script, contacted him. He's like, ah, oh, man, I'm not really into shit like this. I'm like, dude, just read the script. So he read it, and he's like, you know what? I think I could be into this. So we met. I went through how I wanted to do it. He was on board completely, signed the contract. He started doing it. Uh, had him come over to watch a rough cut and he sits down and he's like, Hey man, uh, he had a he had a blast doing it. It was so great to work with, but then <laughs> he never told me this, but he sits down to watch a rough cut and he's like, Hey man, just so you know, this movie better be good because five days after I signed your contract, <laughs> scary stories to tell in the dark wanted to hire me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, and then he watches like, Oh, that was fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's so funny. Um, sorry. So, sorry. The, Guillermo, I stole Chet from you. <laughs> yeah. Right. What about the lighting for the, for the for the movie? I mean, it's like were you inspired by anything in particular? Because the, the that's that's exactly blues. how my apartment and living situation has been lit for the past decade. So I kind of <laughs> just funny. took it from that. But um, I like doing you know I just another thing like how I was saying I how I hate you know how a lot of movies in LA are shot in like the Hollywood Hills and stuff like that. I hate in horror movies now where they're just so overexposed. They're all shot in locations where it's like white walls. I feel right. like they just rented Airbnbs, didn't do any production design. Everything's blown out and it's like I feel like horror movies should come from a place of darkness. So uh, when I make movies I want to start it basically you're looking at a black frame and we're going to light that frame so there's a lot of darkness. Like I feel like that's a horror movie should look and because I just like sensationalized images um, I like multicolored stuff like that. Like I always try to bring that aesthetic into it and I feel like as I make more and more movies, I'm just, you know, it's just kind of going on steroids at this point. But I do try to always look for an organic place to bring the lights, like as crazy as the lighting is, you know, in Bliss. It's like, yeah, it's lit crazy in there. It's like I just, you know, you accentuate the nightlight, you accentuate any sort of signs, you accentuate everything into the point where it's almost fantastical, but it always has to come from an organic place, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So VFW is a project that you actually didn't write. So how did you end up taking that on and what spoke to you about that script? 
so the producer Dallas Sanye, who uh, now owns Fangoria, yeah. he was my manager back in the day, and he actually discovered my very first movie, Almost Human. He had it sent to him, and he watched it, and he was like, "I think that there's something here." Signed me on as a manager, um, helped me get it released, and then soon after that, he decided to become a producer full time. In which case, I was like, "Let's go make a fucking movie," yeah. and it never happened. He made Bone Tomahawk and all these other fucking movies in the meantime and didn't make one with me um but eventually he sent me you know he launched fangoria and he sent me a bunch of scripts and this is the first one uh where i saw something that i could do something that i felt like spoke to me and uh i did do a lot of like rewrites on it to really push it into my personal what excites me my personal aesthetic um but a lot of the meat was there and the funny thing is is i signed on to this movie and i was like you know i really want to go make a movie it's been three years since mind's eye um i signed on to vfw and at the same time I signed up to VFW, I was like writing Bliss and I was like, I just got to make a movie. I'm going to go make Bliss for 10 grand if I have to. And I was so angry writing it. And uh, I signed up to VFW, finished Bliss almost simultaneously. And then somebody came to me and they're like, I've got a couple hundred grand for a movie. Would you be willing to do something for that low? And do you have anything? Handed them Bliss. They immediately agreed to do the movie. So I had to call Dallas and be like, hey. I'm going to go make bliss uh, real quick before we shoot VFW. <laughs> and he's, you know, he's like, what? Ah. He wasn't yelling, but he's like, you know, he's just very confused. And I'm like, dude, trust me, we're just going to go shoot it. Um, and if VFW comes together, I will shelve bliss and edit it after. Just let me go shoot it. I need to shoot this fucking movie. Like, let me grease my wheels too. Cause it's been three years. So we went and shot bliss. Um, and we literally raced to finish it to the point where we were still in post. I drove to Dallas to start VFW and Josh was sending me like finalized clips because we were premiering in Tribeca in April. So we finalized the movie and we premiered in Tribeca literally during the VFW shoot. And I said to Tribeca, I go, if you guys want us there, you have to play a Saturday night, which is a primetime slot. And they're like, well, fine. So we got the primetime slot. And then we, <laughs> we literally wrapped an explosion uh at sunup we wrapped an explosion in a gunfight with steven lang i hopped in the car drove to the airbnb packed my shit we all fucking chugged beers got in the lift <laughs> screwed to the airport got on the fucking plane got off the plane went and did press and then we're fucking driven to the pre-party premiered the movie partied all night woke up the next day had another screening got on a plane went to dallas slept for six hours and started shooting again it sounds like Holy another shit. one of your movies <laughs> yeah, it was, and everybody's like this is so crazy how are you doing it i'm like this is the fucking dream yeah this man is awesome. rock star. <laughs> this is the best and then when i'm in my q a at you know at tribeca during press i could just be like yeah i'm actually in the middle of shooting a stephen lang williams sadler uh siege yeah. movie right now motherfuckers yeah, yeah so exactly <laughs> oh that's so great yeah. so was the was the amazing kind of genre cast part of the original script idea the whole time to bring like Stephen Lang and William Sadler and Fred Williamson and all that or was that was that your well right from the get-go I think what uh, attracted Dallas to the script initially and then attracted me was um the whole entire thing was like you had six older Vietnam vets and I think Vietnam vets are like the coolest fucking characters you could have on screen Hell yeah. and especially now when they're older and there's not a whole lot of movies like and uh you know Lang and Sadler were saying this on set they're like normally we're all up for the same role one of us gets it there's never a time when we can all act together huh. and then we got to get them all and then you know lang is just like such a good fucking actor and like quarterback like where he acted like the owner of the bar and when you have guys like that nobody wants to have the ego nobody wants to be the fuck up nobody wants to be the weak link so all of these guys were like so fucking on point so nice so collaborative and like so trying so hard to like one up each other so that nobody was the bad man out. And it was like the most amazing thing ever. And none of them being how I look and how young I am gave me any shit. They were like, you know, I show up on set running camera, trying to, to 
you know, direct 350 collaborative, you know, cumulative years of acting experience. Right, right. And they were totally cool. And, you know, you know, Lang would give me tips and be like, you know, because uh, I've never worked with eight people in one scene for 60 pages, let alone yeah. eight legends, like who are fucking top, you know, top, like to me, yeah. dream actors. And, uh, you know, he would just say, you know, he'd give me, t- oh, Joe, maybe you should, yeah, have you thought about this? Like maybe approach, you know, you've got eight guys in a scene like this and like never trying to take over, but be like, he knew the situation I was in and he's just, I mean, I learned so fucking much from working with those guys. They were never standoffish. They were just there. We were all there for the same reason. And I think that again, comes from me knowing exactly what I want and being there on set with the camera and being like, our guys were all in this together. And like, you know, I don't know. It just, it was, it was a really good experience and there was so many effects and action in that movie. Hell yeah. Uh, (laughs) I had no anxiety about that. I was like, fuck that. That stuff's, uh, we can get that, you know, we'll figure out a way to get that. What I really am nervous about is staging eight guys in this tiny space for 62 pages straight and a making it look good b making sure that they're all happy and c like making it interesting while we're in this confined space for so long so like i had so much going on in that and uh it it all you know worked out well and and thank god to them that they were so cool that because we shot the movie in 18 days oh shit no fucking way everybody you know the entire crew is like i don't know how we're gonna do this movie and it's like well be more positive but we're (laughs) Let's figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out, guys. Trust me. And yeah. we were just um, running so fast. And, you know, I don't use a scripty, <laughs> much to the dismay of, you know, some people. But I don't like scripties. And uh, I don't like marks. And I like being um, kind of improv. Like, I let the actors improv. I also improv with the camera. Like, I just, it, it's a collaborative thing where I feel like we're all in this together. Let's work the best scene. Let's work the fucking best scene. You know, ultimately, I'm in charge. But I want to give everybody freedom. You know, I don't. I don't want to have these guys in a room and be like, don't do your thing. Right. So like the second day on set, uh, where I was sitting there and we're running a scene and slang, uh, Steven Lang sits back and he's like, Hey Joe, so there's no scripty on this show, huh? And I'm like, no, he's like, no marks either, huh? And I'm like, <laughs> nope. And he's like, pretty fucking cool. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> in his that crazy went, that deep voice. Went, yeah, that could have went either way. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fuck, I'm out of here. <laughs> was, was that actually shot in American Legion Post? Yeah, the interior was. We did some production design and um, built some false walls and stuff, but that was uh, a running, operating uh, VFW post. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the guys who ran it were really cool too. We were just like, I was so against shooting on a real VFW because of how much destruction happens. And I had doubts. I'm like, I'm like, we gotta fucking build it because I'm not going in there and like having somebody tell me that I can't spill blood. So he's like, no, trust me, we'll fix whatever. So we go into this VFW and it looks great, but of course, you know, I got my arms crossed and I'm like, I we're not they're not gonna let us fuck this up. So then the guy comes over and Dallas like, well, just run through what you want. And I'm like, I'm adding stuff in my head. So just to see how this guy, like, oh, we're going to blow this. Shit. We're going to put an explosive right there and blow that out. This is going to be covered in blood. We're going to fuck that up. We're going to blow that window. out. I want to build a wall here. And the guy who runs the VFW post is just like, cool, man. You think you guys can like sign it? And I'm like, <laughs> so we're, um, fucking like true to their word. We were blowing the shit out of walls. Like dis- we fucking destroyed that place. And, no qualms whatsoever. They actually had assigned destroyed parts of the bar that they decided to keep there. Oh, that's um, so cool. And apparently their, their regular uh, clientele, not all of them knew that they were shutting down for a movie. So when the pool table was knocked down, the pool table blew out and there's just fake body parts everywhere. And we're running a scene. We look over and like this six foot seven, you know, fucking 70 year old Dwight look Dwight Yoakam looking cowboy walks and steps on the pool table, which has body parts and blood on it, takes his cowboy head off and goes, 
Uh, this open for business? <laughs> You're like, yeah. Okay. Rough night. <laughs> well, what was what was all those guys? Uh, you know, your cast of actors. What was their reaction to like the the choreography? We'll say because uh, the, they they've done some crazy shit, but nothing that as crazy yeah. as they got to get in VFW. Yeah. Was that stuff all kind of choreographed and it's all practical? So they had like one shot probably for a lot of that shit. Um, yeah. Well, we ran through a lot of it, and then there's one of my shining moments is when. Sadler stomps the skull in. Yes. That's actually my feet. We went and did it on a Saturday afternoon. Ah. So I put on his wardrobe and I was stomping the fucking shit out of his head. So I'm a Sadler, I'm a Sadler champ, basically. <laughs> um, but, you know, I feel like they were kind of. Uh, Fred Williamson was definitely very apprehensive to the blood. You know, ain't nobody put blood on me. <laughs> but by the end, he was okay with it. Um, and I think the actors didn't necessarily know. But again, it's like when a blood gag goes right and I get covered in blood and I'm just like, fuck yeah, cut, we got it. Yeah. And they get excited. And then like they're seeing me run around with like blood dripping off the camera and I'm covered in blood. I'm directing them like, they're not going to then go, oh, I got blood on my face. Like, you know what I mean? So they started embracing and they're walking around like every time, like I would take a picture every time there was an actor covered in blood with them. And I'd be like, I'm getting a picture because I might not see this again. And like, they definitely embraced it by the end. Um, and it got to the point too, where Slang's like, hey, Joe, I think I should be a little more bloody right here. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and then a spoiler alert, but Dora, Dora's death is fucking magnificent. Yeah, <laughs> it's fucking awesome. It is fucking crazy. Which, is that a whole prosthetic that you had to make of her? Or how did that so, work? So um, we did a, they did a, uh, a life cast of her head so that we can get the actual close up of the flagpole going in. And then the wide shot is actually it's almost all door it's a really just small contraption where it's the flagpole and there's a little jut out to the side they cut the flagpole and made like a little rest and she just has her head in there we shot it from the other side and she's like a yogi so fucking good at yoga so she was able to hold that position basically balancing on this while we got the shot so it's a prosthetic head going through and then just proper framing a nice little magician's trick and then like her impeccable balance because she's holding that too there's like slangs acting around her and like walking around her. yeah it's a 40 second thing and she just didn't if you you can fucking look at that and she does not even buzz an inch does not breathe does not flutter nothing and she's just holding it and like so that's a lot of performance and magic trick and you know editing so yeah it's my favorite effect too and it's also was probably the most simple to pull off like huh, yeah. unbelievable how that is huh yeah. did you keep that head Someone's I did not. Fangoria has it, unfortunately. Oh, I'm gonna raid Fangoria. I wish. <laughs> That's a keeper. And then, and then the score, Stephen Moore, who you worked, yeah. you've worked with before. Yeah. he's just fucking nails it. And I love oh, his band too. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, he uses like there's a lot of synth scores that come out now where it's like I love synth scores, but I'm almost getting to the point where it's like, oh, this is just somebody in on their laptop who just fucking threw this together. Like, but Steve, like, he, it is ingrained in him. He has the fucking same every synth that Carpenter used for every movie. He's got he's got the old bass. Like, he has all analog equipment, oh, all the wow. original shit, and he actually like. I mean, yeah, Zombie is so good. He comes from a place where it's like, it's true. It's not somebody just going, oh, I'll quickly do a synth score on fucking Fruity Loops over the weekend. It's yeah. like, he's there recording every instrument, fucking mixing that shit together, playing like, and with Bliss too, I was like, dude, you got to add some sleazy ass guitars because we tempt a lot of it with the hardware score by Simon Boswell, which has a lot of really great, like erotic guitar solos. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted him to kind of embrace that. I'm like, you know, dude, you got to use some guitar work, some bass work. Like, and he's like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I'm like, dude, I've heard oh, zombie. Yeah. The bass work and guitar work is so fucking good in zombie. Yeah, so then he finally pulls in. He's like, I don't know what you're going to think of this. And then I listen to it. And I'm like, 
Uh, I think it's fucking masterful, dude. Jesus yeah. Christ, why are you so worried about it? This is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's women in, in reverb, man, but it yeah, sounds yeah. so fucking awesome in that yeah. movie. It's and then when we, the funny thing is, too, when we printed it to 35, it basically makes all the sound optical, so it's like an analog, very rich sound. So listening to his scores, like on VFW and Bliss, analog, 35 projection, it's just like, oh, God, this is how it's supposed to sound. I'm like yeah. salivating while I'm watching it. <laughs> <so. laughs> is there a subgenre you're planning on tackling in the future? I'd like to basically, pretty much I feel like the only things that I may never do are comedy and drama. Uh, I'd like to maybe, uh, I feel like I have comedic sensibilities, but I feel like they don't match those of normal people. So I don't know how that would play off in a comedy. (laughs) Drama, I don't know. I just, I don't have that much interest in it because I like such sensational, fantastical subjects. Uh, But I would love to do a straight crime movie. I'd love to do a revenge movie. I'd love to do a straight action movie. I'd love to do a straight, like sleazy erotic thriller like a, a very fatal attraction basic instinct oh that'd be fun movie. man yeah, that'd be yeah. So yeah. i feel like that's a subgenre that's missing in cinema now that could really come back yeah there's just so much stuff i want to do you know i want to do a time travel movie i want to do a werewolf movie oh that's another cool. alien yeah. movie. i want another alien movie so bad but i'm like oh, i already did one what's the what's the length of time between you can do <laughs> right <laughs> De Palma did, of limitations yeah, De Palma did two telekinetic <laughs> movies back to back so yeah. i guess i shouldn't complain too much <laughs> all right there's no rules there's you make your own exactly exactly it's just the guilt of when i'm like think of an alien i'm like oh this is so lazy i already did an alien movie. <laughs> so you got not one but two kick-ass horror movies man with bliss and vfw i mean it's like i don't think that's ever been done before right Right in the same in year. The same year. <laughs> uh, I mean, man, I don't want to say never. It's just had to have been. Right? Well, Rennie Harlan did Die Hard two and Ford Fairlane in one year. Oh, Not yeah, horror, but <laughs> yeah, very good movies, <laughs> in my true. opinion. It's true. No, it is right. true. Yeah. It is true. Yeah. But the good thing is these make a great double feature. Yeah, they which do. is yeah. fucking awesome, yeah. right? To be yeah, able especially to, especially when you see the cast and you're like, oh man. Yeah. Also, I feel like when we did it at Beyond Fest, they played VFW first and then Bliss at Midnight, which I actually think is probably oh, the proper way to watch it because VFW is like a very i feel like it's more involved in the storytelling and you're kind of like getting it and then more bliss it's like i feel like you should have almost that hypnotic descent with her like you should be a little tired and hazy and like you know what i mean i feel like that's the perfect midnight nightcap kind of fuckery right yeah (laughs) it just fucks you at the end (laughs) yeah (laughs) gotta make a third one with the same cast and be like surprise motherfuckers the trilogy yeah Yeah. exactly right it's my aesthetic trilogy (laughs) (laughs) well dude thank you so much for being here tonight and uh i mean everyone you got to see bliss is available on shutter vfw is on apple tv now and apparently if you want to have bliss shown on 35 millimeter there's like one print right dark sky has been like throwing yeah, out the thing there's actually like, a 35 print of uh, Bliss and VFW oh dude both of which are in my possession in my personal prints and I'm very eager to show them anywhere I don't know man that the, is willing the, to project the that little uh, Tarantino theater uh, I'm trying I'm trying you know, I'm, just, I'm just saying <laughs> that you know, would be know, yeah, fucking yeah. rad <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's next level when you're playing at Tarantino's theater on 35 so I'll cross my fingers Joe thank you so yeah. much for being here man yeah for we sure thank you guys for awesome, man. it was awesome yeah. That was a Boo Crew Podcast, episode 112. Special thanks to our guest, Joe Begus. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Joe Begus. That's J-O-E-B-E-G-O-S. And see VFW and Bliss on VOD now. At time of release, grab Bliss on Blu-ray now. VFW's due out on Blue end of March. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast.
Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.